We're in week two of our new series, While You're Waiting. What do you do when you wait? Many of us have different ways of coping with waiting. Whether you're at the, the RMW, you're at jury duty, you're standing in line at the grocery store, you're doing one of the many things, you're sitting in traffic, you're waiting for your spouse, you're waiting for a friend, you're waiting for the cable repairman who said they will show up on Tuesday between 9 and 5, they show up at 5.30. You're waiting. Waiting really shows who you are. Um, I remember this one time, I was flying, I was flying from LaGuardia to Denver, Colorado. Not a, not a long flight, uh, it was early in the morning, settled in, uh, put my uh, bags in the overhead bin, I'm all buckled in, there are two people on the, on the side of me, we're waiting, we're ready to go, the, 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 the aircraft moves out, we're taxiing to the runway, and all of a sudden there's a delay. Okay, not, not too bad, it's a, it's a delay we can handle. They said 10 minutes, not a problem. I'm sitting there watching, looking outside. 10 minutes becomes 20, becomes 40, becomes an hour, becomes an hour and 10, becomes an hour and 15, becomes an hour and a half. You may be sitting here thinking, eh, one hour and a half, not a big deal. Well, let me paint a picture for you. Imagine sitting all buckled up in a seat next to two other people in a large tin can with 200 other people. There's something wrong with the plane because the air conditioning's not, not working. And I'm usually one to ca- carry a book with me, but for some reason that day, I said, you know what, I want to take a nap. I'm going to leave all my stuff in the overhead bin. So no book, and this is pre-smartphone days. The smartest phone they had was a flip phone, so that was pretty useless. I'm sitting there. The only thing that you can do is look out the window, look at the seat in front of you, and look at the two people who are already asleep. And here I am in this prison cell of a seat, two hours with nothing to do but this. And that's when I realized, if they ever made waiting a torture, I'm done the first five minutes. I'll give you whatever you need. You will get it out of me. Waiting is a part of life. Waiting is no matter where you go, you will have to wait. Some of you got here 10, 20 minutes early before service started. You had to wait, right? It's just a part of, part of life. It is part of who we are, part of American life, part of life all around the country. There are lines you'll wait for. There are things you'll wait for. There are people you'll wait for. As Christians, waiting is part of our DNA. It's part of who we are as a child of God. Our greatest hope is actually built around waiting. We're waiting for that moment when Christ will return, when everything will be restored back to its original glory, when our sorrows and our tears will be wiped away, everything will be made whole. We will get to see our God face to face. We are waiting for that day. But my question is, How do you wait? What do you do in the meantime? What is that thing that keeps you occupied? Are you like that, like me sitting on a seat, just twiddling your arms, waiting for the time to pass? Are you waiting for a day to pass so that you just, you can get to that point? Or are you living the waiting period? Are you living the waiting with intention? Are you living 
with purpose. You see, there is a purpose for you and I when we're here on this earth, no matter how long or how short it may be. There is a purpose that we are all endowed with. God looks at you and me and says, you are here for a reason. There is a time when you'll come get to, get to see me face to face. But until then, there is a pattern that we have to live by. There is a purpose behind our waiting. There is a life that must be lived out in our waiting. Last week, we looked at some of the criteria that Paul lays out. So we started the book of Titus. And he's, he's talking about selecting the leaders of the church in Crete. And we started by asking this question... In the spirit of waiting, who are the people that we listen to? But today I want to ask a parallel question. Who are the people we should not be listening to? Whose voice should we ignore in our Christian walk? One of my favorite stories when I was a little kid, if you don't know, let me, let me read it for you. You've heard the story of the little Red Riding Hood. And if you need a refresher, here goes. Little Red Riding Hood. When she went to visit her grandmother, the big bad wolf knew that she was coming. And so he got rid of grandma and disguised himself to look like grandma in bed. Little Red Riding Hood may have suspected that something was out of order, but she kept inching closer. Comedy, my, what big eyes you have, grandma. The better to see you, dear, answered the wolf. My, what big ears you have, Grandma. The better to hear you, my dear. Finally, Little Red Riding Hood said, My, what big teeth you have, Grandma. To which the wolf replied, The better to eat you with, my dear. He leaped out of bed to grab her, and the Little Red Riding Hood barely escaped with her life. Here's my question. Who is the big bad wolf that you and I need to discern against. There are voices in our culture and in our lives that if we do not discern rightly, can put us in serious jeopardy. Discernment will keep us from flirting dangerously with enemies who want to destroy you. In chapter 1 of Titus, Paul puts a lot of effort. He goes into detail, into laying out a framework for the selection of the elders and leaders within the church at Crete. But why is he doing that? Is it just to create more positions so that people could be involved? Is there a reason why, there is, why he's putting this framework into place? He's putting a framework of leadership, sound teachings, and accountability. For what reason? In verse 10, Paul starts with a three-letter word that sets us up on the right path. He says, and this is how verse 10 begins, for there are many. See, sometimes we can just gloss over that little word. But that little word connects this week's sermon with last week's. It connects verses 10 and 9. Let me read verse 9 and 10. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, Empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. 
So we see last week how Paul gives us this framework of how the church needs to look, what the leadership structure looks like, what the elders, what are the characters you're looking for, what is the, what is the, uh, what kind of qualities are you looking for in an elder, and he sets us all up. And when we get to verse 10, he goes into the why he does this. He's saying there is a reason, there is a for there that you need to, you should not ignore. He's saying there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, especially they're deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. See, it's a young church at Crete. Crete is just starting out. Here's Paul coming in and he, he evangelizes, he preaches the gospel. There are people who are saved. They start this new church and all of a sudden Paul disappears. He leaves. The Spirit moves him on. And Paul, who had worked with Titus till this point, his, uh, Titus is, he, Paul discerns that Titus is ready to take on this new role as the pastor of this church or as the leader in this church. Can you imagine Titus? A young man having to take on this church. But what's unique about this church, it's not like every other church. It was unique because it was known for how crazy the people of Crete were. How out of, out of character the people of Crete were. And then he's saying there is a problem that is confronting you. There's a problem that is your, the church is going to be confronted with. There are many who are insubordinate. There are empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. See, Paul's giving us a little insight here. Paul is arguing that the biggest dangers for the church are not outside the church. It's not from the atheists who want to remove God from society. It's nor is it from the politicians who want to change laws against the, against the ways of God. It's not from the persecution it faces in the marketplace in academia. It's not from the growth of Eastern religions like Islam and Hinduism and Buddhism. These are difficult for the church, I accept. But these are great challenges. These are great opportunities for the church to minister in, for the church to be a witness in. You see, it's not the problems outside the church that are a great problem. But instead, the biggest danger is internal. Paul is saying there is a problem that you are going to face. He looks at Titus and he says, there are problems that you already have. A young church meeting in homes. These, these are just brand new people, but you already have this problem. These are voices that spring up within the church that do a lot of damage. These, the church in Crete had a problem with those who were insubordinate. They didn't want leadership. They're empty talkers, deceivers. These are religious people he's talking about. These are people who attend the church. These are also the people he describes in verse 16. And in verse 16, he says, They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. People within the church. These are people who claim to be Christians, but by words only. They have a doctrine that they claim, but are not a matching reality. They have big faith talk, but no fruit. They're warped in their mentality. They're warped in their morality. 
They claim to be Christians, but they deceive people with their subtle falseness. They are walking contradictions. You see, this, is not, uh, this was not a problem just in Crete. When Paul's talking to the Corinthian church, he is having to deal with that there. When he's talking to the Ephesian church, he's having to deal with that there. As a matter of fact, in Acts chapter 20, verses 29 through 31, he reads, we read, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. And he ends with this, therefore, be alert. Paul tells them to be alert and watchful for the problematic words from within the church. To Titus, he's telling that he's going to encounter these people. It's a given. They are there. Be ready. Be alert. But he specifies a little bit. He talks about people, but he goes into a little bit of detail and says, this is a circumcision party. You see, the circumcision party, there were former Jews who became Christians. They accepted Jesus as their Messiah, but they held on to some of the practices of their former life. Some of their traditions, they were not ready to give up, the biggest of which was circumcision. They preached the wrong word that for a Christian to be a true Christian, there were additional steps to be taken beyond believing in Christ. So imagine you were a person from Crete, a male who comes in, and one of these people, they're, they're talking to you about the gospel. They're giving you this presentation, and he's saying, here's what you need to know. You're a sinner. Okay, accept it. There's no way for you to please God. Okay, accept it. And so God, in his mercy, sends Christ down, and he dies for you. Great, I believe that. Is that all? No, but there's one more step you have to take. You see, they were adding something to the gospel. You need to do more after you believe in Christ. As a false teacher, they're adding to the gospel. This is subtle, but it's the wrong gospel. The Cretan believer they were falling into this trap, not knowing any better. They said, okay. They were being led away from the true gospel. So what is this true gospel? Let's take a quick look in 1 Corinthians 15. And Paul is writing again. He's, let me read these for you, 15, 1 through 5. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as it was as of first importance. First importance. He say, of all the things I've told you, this is the most important. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, who's Peter, and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, although some have fallen asleep. This is the gospel, that Christ died for our sins, he was buried and was raised on the third day. To be saved, that is all you need to hold fast to. 
Any gospel that says you need something more is not the gospel. If you continue reading in chapter 15, you will not see Paul say, and then add this too. And then do this one more step. For salvation, there is no needed action except your belief in the Christ, in Christ that would die for your sins. Anything more, anything less than the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ is no longer the gospel. It is false. Here's the truth. There are some amongst us that today very much like that circumcision party holds on to that one thing that they need to do in addition to. Some are blatant. Some are subtle. Here's the warning that Paul gives. Do not add or take away anything from the completed gospel. These people that he's talking about, they are, they, they are religious by word, imposing on others a standard of holiness that is not sanctioned by the scriptures. What saves you is the work of Christ plus this special religious knowledge or a special diet or a special ritual or a practice that qualifies you to get into heaven. That is not the gospel, Paul says. See, when Paul is talking, he appears to have two people in, uh, two groups of people in mind. The first group is those who he's addressing, saying, you are wrong, you need to stop. But he is also thinking about someone else. Paul is looking at a second group, a group that so blindly believes what this first group says. He's looking at that second group sharply and they say, and so that they will believe what is sound rather than remaining under the influence of those who reject the truth. He's saying, get out from underneath them. When we look at what added actions we can do, we take our eyes off of the cross and put them on ourselves. The moment we say, I need to do this one extra step, we've taken our eyes off of the Savior and we've said, you know what, I can add on to this. I can do, I can contribute. It becomes a part of my work. Maybe there are some of you who've come in thinking that you needed to check off the right boxes to be saved. By doing the right things, you would gain salvation. And for some of you, there's that burden that you've been carrying around saying, I can never live the perfect life, so I question whether I am saved. Let me ease that burden for you. Jesus died on the cross. He was buried, and he was raised on that third day. The belief in his work, his completed work, gives us salvation. See, in a church that is facing an internal crisis of wrong words, it is our responsibility that we make sure to unfollow the leading of such voices. The voices that tell us there's more. There is something that's missing. Your life, your belief is incomplete. It's our responsibility to unfollow that. There are voices that should have no place in our lives. But the question is, what is it that drives these insubordinate, empty talkers, these deceivers? As we continue on to verse 11, this is what he says. They must be, 11 through 14, they must be silent since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. 
One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. This is quite the description Paul is giving. Paul is careful not to place those labels personally. He instead does this very quirky little thing where he takes one of their own poets. He takes one of their own voices and uses his description and says, the Cretans, they're liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. You see, he's discerning. He's discerning these wolves in sheep's clothing. He's discerning these wolves that have crept into the church. He's looking at them and saying, these are evil people. The crisis within the church, he's looking at their motives, is driven by wrong motives. These are people who are driven by their own pride and selfish gain of money, fame, and power. This is the first century creed. Tim Chester, in his commentary on Titus, he's writing this, living the good life of the gospel is always a challenge. When we live in a wider culture that defines the good life in other ways, it's particularly hard in a culture where newspapers cannot be trusted and politicians are corrupt. A harsh, selfish, racist culture in which there is a fear, there is a fear of crime, a culture where people are reluctant to do manual work, which is therefore left to the migrant worker, a culture which is routinely, where people routinely overeat. And that was the culture of the first century Crete. Paul, Tim Chester is looking at Paul's words and he's saying this is what defines them. If Paul could speak to us today, the 21st century church, how would he define our culture right now? The same words that I read apply to us. We see the same motives prevalent in our churches and in our ministries, sometimes obvious, sometimes subtle. Just look around the many TV ministries and the many t- the ministries that surround us that they're, that they're there for one reason, for selfish gain. They're pay for healers. They're full-time fundraisers and self-proclaimed prophets spewing heresy. We see that all around us. And along with, these, with the voices within the church, we have a prevailing culture that kind of feeds into it. The voice of our culture too often, which needs to stay out there, make its way into our church. The voice of materialism is powerful. The motive of greed is powerful and needs to be addressed within the church, needs to be addressed within our hearts. The voice of the pursuit of happiness. We make statements like, God just wants me to be happy. He's not concerned with my sin. God won't give me more than I can handle. We even give advice to people saying, do what makes you happy. The pursuit of happiness. The voice of inclusion. We are all God's children. So it doesn't matter what you believe or what you practice. We can all coexist, right? These are voices within the church. The voice of in, uh, voices of individualism and self-ambition. These are voices that we hear within the church that Paul is speaking out against. They have somehow infiltrated the church. 
When Paul refers to the Cretans as always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, and talks about silencing them and rebuking them, it's not very politically correct. You wouldn't go out to the world and say, this is how, this, you would not use these descriptions. So what's going on here? Is Paul just being mean and intolerant? Is he being insensitive to the culture? I would argue that he is being the exact opposite. He's looking at the church and saying, the people within the church, the church of Christ, the body of Christ is too precious for people like this to come and destroy it. These people who are within these churches, these people who are bought by the blood of the land, these people who are bought by the blood of Christ, who have put their faith in Christ, they are too precious to be taken away by these people. Paul is looking with such mercy and he looks at these at the people in the church and they and he says they are too precious. And so the action of silencing them, of muzzling them, it's it's radical, but it has to be done. The voices within our churches, the voices within us. The voices that speak against the work of Christ. The voices that say the self is more important. My ambition is more important than God's work in my life. Those voices that needs to be silenced because it's working against what Christ has bought with his blood. In verse 16, he continues, They profess to know God, but they deny him by their actions. See, the internal crisis in the church is facing, is caused by wrong motives. It is our responsibility to make sure that we unfollow these voices. But it's also our responsibility to make sure that these motives don't drive us. Tiger Woods, who would be considered one of the most successful golfers of all time, one of the most highly paid athletes in the world for many years. Throughout the 2000s, Woods was a dominant force in golf. He has broken numerous records and awarded the PGA Player of the Year 11 times. But shareholders of Nike, Gatorade, and other Tiger Woods sponsors lost a collective $5 to $12 billion in the wake of his scandal when it came out that he was unfaithful to his wife and when there was all the scandal that broke through, here's a man who is on the top of his game, who is the picture of a perfect life, all of a sudden is costing, is bringing destruction to everybody around him. You see, what he portrayed and who he was did not match up. They did not align. What he professed and how he acted did not align. And when those two things do not align, it brings destruction and it brings, it brings shame to those around you. As Christians, Paul is looking at the church and he's saying, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. When we profess to know God and we do not live the life he has called us to live, we deny him. We bring shame to him. We're all on a mission to bring, the, uh, bring our neighbor, to bring our family to him. And when, when our life, when our word and our actions don't match up, 
We're actually doing the opposite. We're driving people away. Instead of bringing glory to God, we're bringing dishonor to God. Does the way you live bring God honor or dishonor? Piper writes, does Christ get a good reputation because of the way you you live? Is the excellence of Christ displayed in our lives? That should matter to us. Now, whether we ourselves are praised, let your life, what you say and what you do, let them both point to God. Let them both point to Christ. Christ who set aside what was rightfully his. We just heard a few minutes ago that cry of unfair. It was all his, but he set his glory aside so that he could come and die for you and I. That same Christ who gave us everything is looking back at us and asking for it all. He is looking for a Christian that matches both work and deed. The internal crisis in the church is manifested when our actions don't match the profession of faith. This hinders mission. It causes people to doubt God, ultimately bringing dishonor to Him. It is our responsibility to look at those people that that live this way and detach ourselves to unfollow. These are the voices that have no place in our hearts. These are the voices that should not speak into into our lives. So how do we respond? When you come to Christ... You're not just coming to a new set of rules. You're not coming to a new set of guidelines. But instead, you're coming to a new way of life. When we come to Christ, it is a life marked by consistency between what we profess and how we live. Be thoughtful. As people here in this church, in Mount Hope, here in our Burlington campus, this is Paul's words for you. Be mindful of those who speak into your spiritual life. We should not be fooled by Christians whose actions deny clear biblical principles. All the way through chapter 1, we see the, the role that the elders have. We should be people who are willing to be under authority and not insubordinate. They are, the elders are here, those people in leadership, the people in authority, they're here to set, they're set to watch over us. They're set to pray over us. They're set to care over, uh, care for us and for us to be accountable to them. Be consistent. We need to be aware of the places in our lives where our talk does not match our walk. Because when those two don't match, We live a life of disharmony. We live a life that does not help the mission. I'm going to call the worship team to come up. The way we live, the people we follow, the voices in the church, we're called to be mindful. If we really believe the objective rationally understood word of God, the truth of the scripture. We must not only study and teach it, we must live it too. It's not enough for us to just give lip service. If we genuinely believe that the Bible is the divine truth, we must allow it to permeate our lives, our ministry.
if we truly believe, then to live it otherwise is denying the truth. People who think otherwise may profess to know God, but deny Him by their actions. As we close this morning, I want to take some time. Our worship team is going to lead us. I want us to take some time to look at our own lives. Surrender our lives to Christ. And examine, have we bought into the lie that we need something more? Have there been places in our lives that we bought into that lie? Have we spread that lie, saying you need to do something more beyond what Christ has already done? And if so, take some time to ask God to repent. And if there there are a few of you here today, I am sure that you've been walking around with this heavy burden on your shoulders. This is an invitation for you to let go. Because it's simple. He did the work. You have nothing left to do. We could never, by our actions, by our efforts, ever please Him. That's where Christ comes in. And if you're walking day by day saying, how, what can I do so that I can earn the salvation? What can I do so that I can earn what He, what he can give me? The answer is nothing. Because it would never be enough. Let that be a comfort to you if you're walking around with that burden. Would you just give your heart over to Him? Say, God, I rest myself in that truth. That you are enough. So as I pray, these altars are open. And I'm going to invite the elders in this pastors to come up. And they'll be on either side of this platform. If you want to spend a few moments in prayer with them, I would invite you to come up. But these altars are open. If you want to spend a few moments with the Lord, do take this time. Father, we thank you because we serve a God who does not leave us with an incomplete work. We thank you because you completed that work on Calvary. You completed that work when you were buried. You completed that work as you were raised up. And Lord, we believe that you are our Savior and that we need not run to anything else. Father, I pray for those of us here who are grappling with that truth. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would deal with our hearts. We thank you for your work. Lord, the voices that come that speak against your work, that speak against who we are as your children, I pray that we would be able to silence them by the help of your Holy Spirit. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ.